David and Goliath. Here's a story that really needs no introduction. The imagery is so vivid and the storyline is so compelling that the names David and Goliath are referenced together regularly, not just in churches, but in, at sporting events and on the news and in social media and pop culture. It's recognized, this story is recognized as a universally recognized way of describing an underdog triumphing against all odds. But more specifically for believers, the story, of course, is equally recognizable and hopefully much more beloved. But if we're going to rescue the narrative from the generic place its perceived meaning holds in the, in the cultural storyline, even, even for the typical American evangelical, then we need to look more precisely at its place within the biblical storyline. In this way, we can mine the true riches of its almost incomparable literary glory. For followers of Jesus, if if the Exodus is arguably the clearest picture of the storyline of redemption in the life of the believer, the story of David and Goliath provides perhaps the clearest typological snapshot of the once-for-all victory of Jesus over sin and Satan for the believer. So here's the main point of the narrative. No, no point in keeping you in suspense. God defeats Israel's enemy through his anointed, that is David, representing the people. And this event foreshadows God's greater defeat of Satan through his true anointed Jesus, David's greater son, who also represents God's people. So as we begin this morning, How much hope, no matter what you are facing this morning, can be drawn from the reality that Jesus has secured the victory for us. Brothers and sisters, let us revel together in the hope that we have in Jesus, our glorious Lord. Now, the reason that we know that this is the point of the story, that this is the main idea of the story is because David tells us it is. And frankly, he's the main expositor of the story. His his three mini speeches are really the interpretive key that explain how he views the situation and therefore how we are to understand it as well. Now, in order to, to rightly interpret the significance of the story, we need to consider this narrative both within its place in the, in the unfolding drama of First and Second Samuel and its place within the overall storyline of the Bible itself. In a sense, we need to eavesdrop a little bit. We need to eavesdrop on the conversation that Jesus had with the brothers as they walked along the Emmaus road. And he explained to them how everything in the Old Testament ultimately points to him. So in order to do this first, let's look at the place this story does occupy in first and second 
Samuel. Now, when I introduced this book a few months ago, I mentioned that it was originally one book, just Samuel, or the book of Kingdoms. Now, that will become especially apparent as we get to the end of 2 Samuel, further down the road in our study. Additionally, I mentioned that when the story opened, we wondered who the story, the hero of the story, would actually be. Would it be Elkanah? Or perhaps Hannah? Would it be Samuel? Or King Saul? In terms of human heroes, we now find out that the main character is in fact David, a man after God's own heart. And he will figure centrally, centrally throughout the rest of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Now, secondly, I mentioned that Hannah's prophetic prayer from chapter 2 several weeks ago serves as a type of thematic uh, table of contents for the rest of the book. So recall these words from her prayer. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. The Lord brings low and he exalts. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Therefore, the climax of this theme within Samuel occurs in today's chapter. As the giant is stoned for his blasphemy, the appropriate punishment for blaspheming the name of God, he is brought low by a lowly shepherd boy. Now, if we zoom out a little bit to consider where this this story fits within the the Genesis to Revelation drama of redemption, we will remember the words recorded in Genesis 3.15. That is, after the snake defeated the first Adam, despite Adam's dominion mandate to rule over the animals. It reads in this way, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and he, you will strike his heel. Is there a clearer image anywhere in the Bible, both illustrating this theme as well as foreshadowing the ultimate work of God's own son than when the seed of the woman, that is David, literally crushes the head of the giant-sized seed of the serpent with a literal rock. This story practically guarantees that when the stone will be rolled away from the tomb, the tomb of the last Adam, a thousand years after this event, you can almost picture the tail of a snake sticking out, crushed by the weight of the rock that was rolled away. Now, on to the opening lines of our story, because I guess 
this book did need an introduction after all. My goal is to let this iconic story tell itself. So I want to make it all the way through from verse 1 all the way to the end. If we're going to do that, we need to strap on our seatbelts and hit the ground running. Okay, here we go. Verses 1 through 3. We see here that the Philistines have, in a sense, reversed the Israelites' conquest of Canaan. They have emerged from their their coastal fortresses along the Mediterranean Sea and have trespassed back into the land God had promised to Israel, and they're all the way into Judah. The dramatic scene is set as the two armies line up opposite each other. The Philistine army on the one side, the Israelite army on the other, across from a, from a giant ditch known as the Valley of Elah. Then in verses 4 through 11, we are introduced to Goliath of Gath. The description is designed to convey how intimidating he actually was. Nine feet, six inches tall. His armor weighed 126 pounds. The head of his spear essentially weighed the same as a bowling ball. The word used to describe his, his coat of mail is literally the word scales. He is portrayed as a massive serpent, spewing poisonous threats as he defies Israel and by extension blasphemes their God. Goliath is from Gath. Now if we remember back to Numbers 13, the spies that were sent into the land came back terrified because there were giants in the land, the Anakim. Now later when Joshua drives out the Anakim, they settled in Gaza and Ashdod and Gath in the Philistine territory. This means that Goliath is likely a descendant of Anak, the leader of the Anakim. Now Goliath is described as a champion. The word literally means man between. He is the representative of the Philistines. A victory from him means victory for his nation and his nation's gods. And he is looking for a representative, a man between, a mediator, a champion to fight him from Israel. It's a winner-take-all fight to the death. But Saul and all Israel are terrified and dismayed. No one steps forward to fight. Was it the fact that Goliath was so intimidating? Maybe. That would certainly get your attention. Or was it the reality, knowing that if you step forward as the representative of Israel and you lost, that all of your countrymen, all of your family, all of your brothers and sisters whom you loved, but would be subjugated to the Philistines in lifelong slavery forever. 
Whatever the case, every man is paralyzed with fear. No one steps forward to fight Goliath of Gath. So this is the first place we might insert ourselves into the story. Though we are almost always tempted to identify with the main good guy in the story, we have already established that the main good guy is pointing toward an even better good guy. A man who fought for us as our representative because we needed him to win the victory for us against our enemy. So where do we show up then in the story? Probably first among the Israelites sitting back in fear as the enemy of God taunts the people of God and blasphemes the name of Yahweh. Brothers and sisters, may we heed the warning that we see in this passage, especially especially as a Christian worldview becomes increasingly marginalized in our culture this very day. But because of what Jesus has accomplished for us, it frees us to move forward in confidence knowing that our representative has already won the battle. Now, verses 12 through 16, the contrast is clear as we are reintroduced to David. David is the youngest of Jesse's sons. He's splitting time between serving Saul and feeding his father's sheep in Bethlehem. And as this brief section closes, we see that Goliath taunted Israel for 40 days, morning and evening. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. An entire generation of Israelites were banished to the wilderness for 40 years, not allowed to enter the promised land because rather than trusting God at his word, they feared the giants in the land that God had given them. Now, hundreds of years later, in David's time, not much has changed. So in verses 17 through 23, we see the stark contrast between David and Saul. As soon as David arrives on the scene, he leaves the provisions he brought with the keeper of the baggage, which is a not-so-subtle literary reminder of the place that Saul found himself hiding when he was to be named king of Israel. In contrast, David sprints to the front lines as soon as he arrives on the battlefield. And just as before, Goliath mocks the armies of Israel. But this time, as our section ends, the writer includes these words, David heard him. This book is a literary masterpiece. Verses 24 through 27, David speaks for the first time in the narrative. And with David's bold speech, the truth about God enters the story. God is alive. He is the living God. And this changes everything. 
What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Not so incidentally, the answer to David's question is given. The man who takes away the reproach of Israel, that is their blame. That is their guilt. That is their disgrace the one who takes away the reproach of Israel by defeating the enemy will receive great riches he will receive a bride and he will live freely in the presence of the king now that's interesting because that sounds very book of revelation ish to me in verses 28 through 30 then we see The third giant in the storyline, Eliab, the older brother of David, rebuking him. Remember that that both King Saul and Eliab were a head taller than everyone else. Goliath just happens to be the tallest of the three giants that we see in this story. And all three are brought low. And the one who is mocked is exalted. Exactly as Hannah had prayed. Like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, when God's grace is shown to another, sometimes the people of God respond poorly. So here's a second place we might be inserted into the storyline. A second way that we demonstrate not that we need the courage to win the victory ourselves, but that we, we, that we need another to win the victory for us. Have there been times when we've resented God's gracious favor that He's given to another? This bitterness sometimes harbored within our hearts because it seems like God has so blessed another person, whether that's in their marriage or with their children or with their job or their giftings, and we think, Lord, I just, I just don't understand. And more than that, I can feel the bitterness in my heart. Remember, Eliab was passed over and then watched as Samuel poured oil over David's head, anointing him as king. Can you imagine what Eliab is thinking now? As David comes onto the scene in all his youthful bravado, he actually accuses David of evil. He thinks he knows that David is getting a big head, as it were. He's talking like a big shot, maybe because he was anointed by Samuel. And so Eliab tries to to older brother him back into his place. You know what that looks like, right? You can practically hear the disdain in Eliab's voice. It just jumps off the page. Why are you here, oh anointed one? Where are the few sheep you are supposed to be watching? His disappointment in not being chosen as God's anointed 
has turned ugly. Now in verses 31 through 37, we get the second of David's brief but bold speeches. David's defiance of the defier of Israel gets him a hearing with the king. Now, in these verses, I'm not sure whether to laugh or to cry or to just say, yes, as David expresses his utter confidence in God. Because the scene's kind of an odd combination of, of pathetic and ridiculous that is worthy of ridicule, but it's also inspiring. Here is the shepherd boy, David, pictured in your minds, telling King Saul that neither he nor any man in his army should fear because he will go and kill the Philistine. What does that look like? I mean, the thing that comes to mind is somebody like a Samuel Bridges going up to Shane or to to Alan and saying, hey, don't be scared. I got this. I'm going to take him out. I know you guys are sitting on the sidelines and you're terrified. Do not fear. I am going to kill him through the power of God because he has defied Israel. That's awesome. And it's pathetic. Right? Which of us would send our children into battle? Even if he's a little older and he's more like a young teenager, the point is the same. None of us are as big as Shane. I mean, Goliath. But we know, do we not inherently, that we, especially as men, should be defending our families and going into battle, which makes all this draft talk with the U.S. military absolutely nauseating. Over my dead body will my daughter fight for me against another nation in war. Think about it. That this conversation is taking place at all in these verses is ridiculous. It's such an indictment of Saul. We don't know whether to laugh or to cry at this point. But on the other hand, David's confidence is inspiring. He has complete confidence in the way God has empowered him in the past. And he is utterly confident that he will do it again. Verses 36 and 37. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So David's speech fires up Saul, which is both encouraging and pathetic. Now, verses 38 and 40 might even be more ridiculous and more ludicrous. As Saul says, here, take my armor and go get him. Are you kidding me? Here we see the contrast between King Saul and King David. But the battle scene is set as David decides to fight, not with sword or spear, but in the way God has equipped him with his shepherd's bag and a few smooth stones. 
The contrast is this. Massive Goliath, decked out in armor, with his military weapons, and the shepherd boy armed with his massive trust in God. His shepherd's bag and a slingshot. In verses 41 through 44, Goliath starts to mock David and to blaspheme God by cursing David in the name of his gods. He tells David, the wild animals will feed on your flesh. In verses 45 through 47, David responds by essentially talking smack back to Goliath. But he's new at this, right? He's just a kid. It's his first battle. He's not that good at it. He basically says, no, you won't. I'm going to do that to you. Right? But what David actually says is crucial. This is his third speech, and it proclaims the meaning of the victory. Verses 45 through 47. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that All this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Is David courageous? Absolutely. But according to David's own words, It is the Lord himself who is the one who will ultimately provide the victory. David is ultimately zealous for the glory of God and supremely confident in the power of God. So in verses 48 and 49, both of these warriors go right at each other. And David's speech ends up being longer than the fight itself. Right? If this were on pay-per-view, you'd want your money back. Because when the Lord fights for you, the battle is over. Verses 50 through 54, as we near the end, the writing is so good here. Verses 50 through 54. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. And struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath. And the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his 
tent. How's that for graphic description? But note the response of the people to the victory provided by their champion. And this is perhaps the most important place we can insert ourselves into the story. What is our call and what is our challenge since our champion has routed our enemy? We are to rise with a shout and run to the battlefield confident that the war has already been won by Christ. We must remember that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Jesus has already vanquished them by triumphing over them on the cross. Colossians 2.15. Therefore, we can move forward into the culture wars knowing that ultimately we are on the right side of history. And we can preach the gospel to all nations confident that God desires to move many onto the right side of eternity. Brothers and sisters, it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Ephesians 3.10. At this moment, God desires to put his wisdom in redemption on display through the church. As we trust in him, in his glorious goodness, and in his incomparable power, how much hope does that give us to face whatever it is that is before us this day? Jesus has won the victory for us. In verses 55 through 58, in the last few verses, the story turns to David's lineage. David's family will receive tax-free status in the kingdom. That's good. And David will receive a bride. That's better. And the story ends with a focus on the genealogy of David. Whose son is this? That is the question. David answers for himself, I am the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And Matthew, in the New Testament, answers the question in its first verse with respect to Jesus. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is crucial because Jesus is David's greater son. And because of who he is, Jesus was able to secure an even greater victory for the people of God. So the question becomes, how does this particular account demonstrate that David's life, in fact, does point us to Jesus? Let's look at just a couple of examples just taken from the end of chapter 16 and chapter 17. Both were born in Bethlehem. Neither David's nor Jesus' family were particularly impressed with either one of them at least from the beginning. Both were shepherds. Jesus was, of course, a carpenter turned itinerant preacher, but he declared in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Both were chosen by God to be king. 
When Pilate questioned him, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. And Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, claiming for himself the exalted title from Daniel 7. Daniel says, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Both were God's anointed. David was, of course, anointed by Samuel at God's command. Jesus declared as he launched his ministry, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and freedom to the captives. Luke 4, 18. David was sent to the battlefield to provide for his brothers. Jesus was sent to the battlefield and was not ashamed to call us brothers. Rather, he declared to the Father who sent him, I will tell of your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Hebrews 2, 11 and 12. Both men were accused of evil. Eliab accused David of evil in his heart, in contrast to God who called David a man after his own heart. And Jesus was accused of blasphemy when he claimed to be the Son of God. Luke twenty two seventy one. Both men were rejected and mocked, yet both were triumphantly confident in their victory over evil. David told that to Goliath's face before he slayed him. And Jesus declared, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. David took his shepherd's pouch and verse 50 makes a point to say that no sword was in David's hand. Therefore, they fought God's way, entrusting themselves entirely to him and his work in their lives. In Matthew 26, 52, Jesus told Peter, put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Both men reversed the shame designed to disgrace them and their people. David delivered Israel from the reproach of Goliath and left his body in an open field to be eaten by wild animals after he cut off his head with the very sword that was designed to kill him and disgrace Israel when their champion fell. Jesus turned the shame and mocking and curse of the tree completely around by disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame by triumphing over them on the cross. Colossians 2, 15. Both delivered the people from lifelong slavery through one decisive act. That was the deal that Goliath put on the table. In Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, we read, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus himself, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And in in so doing, 
for both men as representatives, all of God's people shared in the victory. And so, brothers and sisters, the story of the the rock to the skull points us forward to the rock called the skull, that is Golgotha, where we all conspired to crucify our Lord. Jesus is our champion. He is our man between. Not just because he stands between our enemies and us, but because on the rock of Golgotha, he stood between the judgment of God and us. Our champion keeps the destructive power of our enemies from us, and our man between absorbed the wrath of God for us. He is our representative and exchanged his righteousness for our sin. And we belong to God because of him. David, though flawed, defeated Israel's fiercest enemy with a slingshot as a boy. And Jesus, though flawless, defeated Satan through the ultimate weakness that is death itself. But what could more potently display the absolute sovereign power of our great God? That's why the moral of this story is not to be like David, for we both, that is David And us needed his greater son to win the victory for us. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, our friend and our King, We are so thankful for the revelation of your word. It is so clear and so beautiful and so powerful because it reveals your glory. Lord, I pray that as we we now sing to our king, that our hearts would revel in the victory that he provided for us. And I pray that the freedom that comes from that victory would launch us into living in any way that you have called us. To that end, Lord, Spirit of the living God, would you lead us now in worship as we sing to our King. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.